0: The Roots team is proud to bring you Strengthen Your Roots, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into connecting with teammates on topics
1: like leadership, as well as personal and professional skill building.
0: Welcome back, listeners, for this month's episode of Strengthen Your Roots. I'm Jaden Cohen, a leasing sales representative supporting the, le- the association's leasing channels. I have the privilege of being part of Roots sub series Bridging the Gap, where we spend time connecting with business units that serve unique customers and markets. Our continued goal is to help teammates gain a broader understanding of how fcsa fits into the larger ag industry and the value we can provide i would like to remind our listeners to stay tuned later in our discussion for the podcast ponder question where listeners will have a chance to add their input in viva engage for an opportunity to win a prize on this episode of bridging the gap i have the pleasure of introducing judd jesky leader of the commercial proteins team judd welcome thanks for being here today thanks jaden I know I said I'd introduce you here, but I'm gonna go ahead and let you introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about uh, what your role is, how long you've been with FCSA, and
1: maybe what you've done previously, and any, any personal bits you'd like to add. Absolutely. Jed Jeske, team leader of the Commercial Proteins team. Been with Farm Credit Services of America for 21 years. Started out in the Lincoln retail office as a relationship manager. Tim Cook hired me in 2002 was in that role for two and a half years, then moved to the agribusiness capital group. I was a beef lender in that that group for 15 and a half years, and then spent a year and a half in capital markets working with protein processing. And then for the last little over a year, I've been in my current role as a team leader for the commercial proteins team.
0: Okay. Is the commercial, is the processing role still part of Capital Markets?
1: Is that still? It is. And it was really a continuation. It worked well for me because I was heavily involved with the large cattle feedlot uh, operations and moving to Capital Markets. That was a continuation of our products through the processing phase, working with the Tysons, the JBSs, the Cargills, chicken processing. Uh, We have a great presence through Capital Markets for the further processing of our agricultural products that are produced within our LSA. All right. Well, let's start there. I think this
0: morning we'll jump in with just some general commercial proteins topics, if you don't mind. Uh, and tell us just a little bit more background so we can gain a baseline understanding of what you and your teams do. Um, what specific industries in the commercial proteins do you work with? And within those industries, what makes a customer uh, classified
1: as commercial for us? Absolutely. We focus only on swine and beef within commercial proteins. I have seven lenders, four beef lenders, and three swine lenders within our LSA footprint. We originate loans within our LSA. We don't buy or sell. That's corporate ag. Okay. And commercial, I look at it as too big to be small and too small to be big. That's kind of the, the arena that we operate in. And I say that because we found historically, uh, in 2015, the commercial, that RCL is what it was called at the time, uh, was formed to serve that segment, and what we found it was underserved. Retail marketplace and bankers really weren't spending a lot of time in the in this space. And for to be a commercial account, on the swine side it, it's 3,000 sows. On the beef side it's 5,000 head of cattle in the finishing yard or feed yard, and that's kind of the segment that we're looking at that size and greater prior to uh, going to a corporate account. So if you look at loan size, it's anywhere from five to up to maybe $100 million in size.
0: Across all their products with FCSA? Correct. Okay. All right. So tell me a little bit more about how we serve those customers. What is the structure of the account teams that we go to market with? And uh, why is it structured the way it is for these customers?
1: We're very unique within the ag lending arena, and it works well. We saw it on the corporate side. Agribusiness Capital uh, implemented this years ago, decades ago, where they were aligned by industry so that we would have specialization by specific industries. So the commercial team, I lead a swine team and a beef team. Within that, we have relationship managers on the sales we have analysts that are solely focused on that specific industry. So they can take a deep dive into what it means to be involved with the swine industry, be involved with the beef industry. Instead of covering all segments, they can, they can go deeper. And we found that our customers, if you look at the trend, uh, agriculturalists uh, are consolidating. Operations are getting bigger, larger. their expectation is that their lender has the unique ability and knowledge uh, that they need and want to operate to provide value to their operation
0: is is the primary difference between the way a commercial lender services a customer versus a retail lender is it that industry specialization is that what sets your team apart from a local bank or something of that nature and You've touched on it briefly, but how is that different than how the corporate lenders uh, approach their customers? What, what makes this space unique?
1: I believe this space is unique in that we're more like corporate lending, in that we can do a deeper dive. We're able to provide benchmarking capabilities uh, that, that will assist operators in their operation to know how they stack up compared to their peers. We can dive deeper into their financials and numbers and say, hey, have you thought about this? Or have you looked about looked in this area? It, it just seems to be an outlier when we look at it compared to your peers. So that's very helpful. In addition, uh, on the grain and, and, and um, ag business side, I know that they have set up peer groups where they brought producers in and those producers have, have gained great value and interacting with other producers of the same size because they're going through some of the same uh, trials, uh, uh, same risks out there, and they're able to discuss that amongst each other.
0: So with the customers in the commercial space, um, you mentioned some of these capabilities that we have, like benchmarking and, and peer group comparison for them, is in the commercial space is the producer also the manager of their financials, or are they having a staff of people hired? How does that work, whereas, you know, a family farm, you know, they're probably keeping their own financials and having an outside CPA maybe. Does a commercial customer have a a full-time
1: person looking over their financials, or does it depend on, on the operation? That's a very good question and a very good point to make. Again. The operations we're serving, you're going to get all across the spectrum. Those that are just kind of outgrowing being the mom and pop operation on up to just being shy of being a corporate customer. Okay. So you see that the big gamut. We have some customers that are doing their own financials. They're kind of their own CFO as well as operations outside of the house or finances on up to where they get some size and scope to where they are able to hire somebody to, to do some of that uh, and surrounding themselves with specialists. So that's where uh, the commercial team is very unique in trying to help uh, our customers be successful.
0: Yeah, that has to be kind of a unique challenge for the lenders and analysts alike, looking at that whole gamut of financials and who's preparing those and interpreting
1: those. That's, uh, that's really interesting. We, we all love to see our customers succeed. I mean, I think the team that I lead, as well as myself, get great satisfaction in seeing our customers be successful. And we have many customers that are multi-generational within our portfolios. And that's just exciting to see that transition, to see that next generation grow and get better.
0: So of the two industries the the swine and the cattle industries for us at fcsa specifically is one portfolio larger than the other and the in the region that we serve it seems like there's an ample amount of both but is does one outgrow the other does it ebb and flow or do we have a strategy around who we're going after for customers
1: it, it's quite interesting i've been in this role for one year and you would think that the beef side of things would be way bigger than the swine side because the value per animal is so much greater. Way more hogs, less value uh, per animal, but there's a greater number of them. So when you look at the beef and swine portfolios of the commercial team, they're very, they're, they're very similar, both about a billion dollars in, in uh, commitment to each industry. When you look at our LSA, Iowa is huge in the swine industry. Nebraska's bigger than Iowa on the beef side of things. So it's just a unique LSA, a unique industries we serve, but both pretty equal.
0: All right. And then the lenders who, who work beneath you in, in your teams, do they have a certain amount of customers that's ideal for them to work with? Or, again, is that dependent on the size and scope of the operations? How do you decide um, what's the optimal amount of customers for your lenders to work with?
1: What we've found so far is, is we focus on a num- the number of customers. Okay. Roughly 25 to 35 customers is where the balance is at. You get up to 30, 35, you kind of get tapped out. Um, and we should start looking at maybe adding headcounts uh, in serving the portfolio.
0: And I would imagine that holds true for the analysts looking at the accounts too. Would that mean that they're looking at about the same amount of accounts as what the lenders are working with? Very
1: similar, but I think there's additional capacity there as far as we have additional resources in in other pools that we can pull from if needed. But yeah, because there is alignment by industry and that has served us so well to have specialists.
0: You mentioned just a couple minutes ago about the LSA and how it is both strong for the pork and the beef side of things. Is there any customers that the commercial teams
1: work with outside of our LSA or is that just strictly within our LSA for the commercial team? The commercial team is focused on originations within our LSA. Once you get outside of our LSA, whether it's purchased or sold or outside of our LSA, that's when the corporate folks kind of get involved. It probably adds some complexity as well, being outside of our LSA, and especially on the beef side of things, you have a lot of cattle moving all over the United States. You have uh, the buying and selling of feeder cattle through sale barns. You have ownership of specific pens that may or may not be uh, by the feed yard. It may be a custom yard with investors. So the size and complexity kind of pushes into that as well.
0: In the space of commercial, what sets FCSA apart from the local banks? Is it specifically that industry specialization or what are some things that we can offer that the com- this size of customer, the commercial customer, is seeking out at FCSA? What, what
1: gives us that leg up? One thing that hasn't been mentioned yet in our discussion is when you look at the, the community bank, a lot of these commercial customers have outgrown their local banks. Banks usually have lending limits. When you look at the last several years, we've had inflation. So it's costing, it's taking more capital to have the same number head of hogs, same number head of cattle, and a lot of times these community banks can't can't grow with their customer, and and that's where our size really helps out. Uh, we've noticed that we picked up some beef customers specifically that have hit their local lent, their bank's lending limit. Well essentially FCS American can go up to 175 200 million before we have to sell off any of that and many of these customers don't come close to that now we're talking five to a hundred million we can hold all of that and customers appreciate that their information isn't shared that community bank if they were to grow with them would have to bring another lender maybe multiple lenders in and this way they're able to keep their information within one one location, one lender.
0: Yeah, it seems that that's the way of a lot of industries these days is the privacy seems to be important, more and more important to the customer the more they learn about how much of their information has been shared in the past and is now, it seems that that can be a a real benefactor to keeping that type of thing in-house. So I think that was a pretty good background or education on the commercial protein's team and the customers both. Let's backtrack just a little bit. And I think you maybe mentioned this earlier, but um, in the term of or in the form of a different team name. But earlier this year, uh, commercial and corporate went through a position to serve realignment. alignment. Is that correct? That is correct. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what changed for your teams and what benefits that position to serve change added to both uh, us internally as well as the customers
1: externally? Very good question, and yes, we, did, we, we initiated the position to serve initiative earlier this year, and what it did is not only take the analyst and salespeople that were aligned under retail commercial lending, it also took the service side of it and aligned our account management specialists Um, our other support staff that are dedicated to the teams as well so that way we don't just have the analyst and RM aligned we have the whole team aligned which is very unique in the industry and valued by the customer because they have a set number of people that they're dealing with that, that get to really know their operation.
0: What did the customer feel in that change? Was there some changing of accounts? Did you gain some customers? Did customers go from commercial to corporate, retail to commercial? Was there kind of a realignment that uh, was seen in the market
1: or was that most of those changes kind of behind our closed doors? Two points I would make there. One, we did a Harvest Insight survey recently, which has told uh, our customers are telling us they, they do not like change between relationship managers. They like dealing with the same people as much as possible. So we try to keep it as much behind the scenes as possible for those accounts that did not have any movement. They value that and we want to respect that. But there, were, there was transitioning of accounts to align with that 3,000 headcount on sows and 5,000 headcount on feed yard cattle to get them into the commercial uh, space. We had accounts that moved from corporate to commercial, commercial to corporate. We had other accounts that moved between retail and commercial, both ways, so that we level set and going forward, we're all in alignment as to kind of where these accounts will end up. So something you might
0: have firsthand experience with is that transition. I'm sure you've transitioned customers in your day, both from lender to lender or industry to industry. Can you tell us what that process might look like? Is it um, kind of a by the book strategy or does it depend on that customer's personality, the lender's philosophy? How does that
1: process work when they go through those changes? It's very unique and it's no cookie cutter approach by any means. Uh, what, what we've tried to do is allow the, the relationship managers that are involved in the account, the one that's handling it now and the one who it's transitioning to, let them decide how that goes. We found that if you can keep it at the lowest level, that usually it's the best way to handle it. We've also noticed from time to time that it's better to, if it's gonna happen, rip the Band-Aid off and get it done. But the unique thing, or where it's worked best, is when all parties are in alignment and supportive. You can make a transition go positively and happen in 30 seconds. You can make a bad transition that drags out six months if people aren't aligned and on board with it. Uh, Our customers truly value the relationship they have with the relationship manager. That comes out in our surveys all the time. They value that relationship. And whoever holds that, they can certainly make a warm handoff. They can make it go as successful as can be if they're behind it. How do we go
0: from a cow-calf to a packer and how does it go from you know a piglet to finishing barns how does that how does that happen what types of customers do we work with within there but primarily if we could just talk a little bit about the life cycle of these two types of proteins from start to
1: finish can we understand that uh, production line a little bit better absolutely when you look at let's start off with beef because that's my my primary background I grew up on a cow calf operation you have ranchers, farmers and ranchers all across the US. The average herd size is smaller than what you would think. And I, I'm guessing it's 20 head or less, and I may be off base, but it's pretty small. You have a lot of, lot of people that have cattle throughout the US. Within our LSA, those herd sizes are much greater. Why? Because we have the sand hills in Nebraska. We have a large grass area in South Dakota, so those herd sizes are larger. When you look at the animals, uh, you have cows and bulls. Usually one bull can service 20 cows. Uh, Once a cow is bred, that usually in, in our LSA, typically a cow is bred sometime between May and July. The gestation period for a cow is nine months, the same as a human being. So that calf is born the next spring. That calf is on the cow, nursing the cow for five months usually October, November after the calf is born. uh, That calf is weaned and it goes to a backgrounder or grows uh, without a high intense diet. It just uh, lets its body frame grow. And then the last part of its life, the last 120, 160 days would be on a high grain finished ration. So from start to finish a calf is born in March let's just say 2023 and it would be harvested in 2024 sometime. So it takes a while. That's one thing. We've lost three to four million head of cows in the last four years. Why? Because of the drought, widespread drought. And when there's drought, it takes grass for cows to to live. Well, when you don't have that food source, we've contracted. And I would imagine that
0: slows down the supply chain from beginning to end. You're not getting weight on calves as quickly, which means you're not getting to feedlots as quickly and packers aren't filling their orders as quickly. Is that all just start to slow down or is that
1: uh, accounted for? Well, what what happens is it's kind of the opposite. You pull calves ahead because, okay, initially you have more meat on the market because you're killing the factory that makes the calves we're down three to four million head of cows. Well, that meat, a lot of it is in the grind, ground beef type stuff, and and that hits the market and it, it overproduces initially. But without that cow there, we have three to four million fewer cows each year, which now they pull the cows ahead to try to keep meeting that demand. And what we've noticed is Right now, uh, you would expect the cow herd to expand because we've gotten some rains in certain parts of the the U.S. that the grass is coming back. You hold those female calves back for breeding. That hasn't happened yet. Why? Because uh, the the beef segment has been so profitable. I mean, we're going to see some record profits in 2022, 2023 on these feeding sectors. But it will also impact demand. And the thing is, you know, we have not seen the pushback on demand yet from the consumer, um, but we may get there. And we may go higher because when we start retaining females to breed, that will be fewer animals that get processed for the meat case.
0: So these are long-term changes. A small couple-year drought can have just the equal time of, or affected just as long on the back end
1: as the market readjusts to those weather patterns? If, if you look at the beef cycle, it takes three years to, to build a herd. A calf is born, a female calf is born. By the time that same animal can produce a calf, it's three years later. So it takes a while to build our numbers within the U.S. Hogs and chickens, on the other hand, have a much quicker life cycle. I mean, a sow can produce 13, 14, or 12 to 14 pigs per sow per litter and they'll do over two litters per year, so you can grow a herd much quicker. And if you look at the protein sector right now, it's the tale of two two cities. The beef side is making a lot of money. The swine side is losing a lot of money. Why is it happening? Well, in the last uh, two years, we are producing more than two pigs per, per per sow per year more than we were a couple years ago. And on six million sows that's a lot of animals and they're losing money right now even though they're getting a higher price uh in 2019 we were selling hogs in the 70s and making money in 2023 we've averaged over 90 dollars for for pork and we're losing money and you scratch your head it's like how can that be well it's the cost of production the grain farmers who produce the grain that go into the animals are making a lot of money and have done well but it's been to the detriment of the swine side of things is
0: that their largest input in a swine operation is a feed
1: outside of the animal yes
0: outside of the animal so let's talk a little bit more specifically about uh, the the hog side of things similar to how you did with the uh, cow calf can you give us a start to finish on where a pig starts and where they end yeah
1: here's 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 a fun fact that has been with me since junior high. Uh, the gestation of a, of, a, of a swine animal, of a hog. Three months, three weeks, three days. It's a great way to remember it. Three months, three weeks, three days. That's the gestation cycle of a hog. About 115 days after a hog is bred, they can produce a litter and they'll produce 12 to 14 uh, pigs per litter, and they'll do that two, 2.1 times per year. So a lot of animals. That animal, uh, when it's born, will stay on its mother nursing for 20, 22 days, three weeks roughly. will get weaned from that sow and go into a nursery and grow. Uh, And from the time going into the nursery to being harvested, it's roughly six months. So you'll have a pig to a fattened hog within six months.
0: So once they're weaned and they go to feed, is that usually the same producer from when they bring them in just as a wean and then all the way to going to a packer? Is it usually the same producer?
1: What we're finding on the swine side of things, and this would be more typical of a corporate customer, is that that pig, when it's born, it knows exactly where it will end up. It's very vertically aligned through a a program, and it it just depends on the operation as far as a lot of times that pig is produced and grown to go through a a a, a specific program, and and whether it's a Tyson or Cargill or JBS, it's usually vertically aligned to end up at, at a kill plant.
0: Does that have to do with the fact that uh, there's, that's all contracted within, so before it's even born, you're saying it's, it's been decided where that pig will make stops beginning to end? Correct. Okay. And,
1: and unique, I mean, we're very blessed at FCS America that our corporate, uh, corporate swine lenders work with 19 of the top 20 producers in the US. We have great penetration within that industry. The commercial team is somebody that may be one off from that. They may be aligned with a pipestone or a triumph for those animals, but their headcounts are nowhere near what the corporate customers' headcounts would be.
0: Okay, so we've talked a lot about uh, the team, uh, the, the two types of animals that we're servicing within the two industries. Uh, let's switch some gears. Let's do uh, the roots podcast segment of the rapid fire questions so i'm going to go through a list of my questions here
1: whoa 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 that's a little intimidating a little scary there jaden
0: we're going to go quick and one word quick answers doesn't have to be one word but uh just kind of first thing that comes to your minds here so um we'll start with a fun one i always think if i are... raise
1: my hand you may have to slow it down
0: <laughs> okay that i can do so the first one i like this question what is your first job and what was your worst job
1: My first job was right my my first professional job was right out of college. I worked at the National Bank of Commerce as a loan analyst. And boy I that was so far on the opposite end of the spectrum of what I thought I'd be doing. I really thought I'd be in pharmaceutical sales or something, because that's where I really thrive is interacting with other people. But at National Bank of Commerce as a loan analyst, stuck in a cubicle crunching numbers. Even though I disliked it, that was exactly what I needed to do to be successful today. Ne- learning the, the, the values of the, the financial aspect, which is so critical to our producers and to FCS America. I'm so thankful that I put that time in and that that's where I started because that gave me a great base into what I'm doing today. Worst job goes back to the farm, you, you know. Uh, cleaning out stalls, something related to that. Um, it's a nice way of putting that job, <laughs> cleaning out stalls. I like that. We've all been there, uh, but but it was valuable as well. And there are days where, you know, that maybe wasn't so bad.
0: <laughs> a couple days in the cubicle, you wished you were back in the stall,
1: maybe? <laughs> exactly.
0: What's your favorite piece of content that relates to your job, whether that's a book Podcasts, an industry expert you follow,
1: or some sort of subscription? I, I've got a couple of things. Uh, one I, I, that, that was just kind of life-changing for me. Two, two, I, I'm going to give you two answers on this. And the first one has to do with an individual I met, and that was James Herring, the CEO of Friona Industries. Uh, for years, uh, Freona was like the number two or three largest cattle feeder in the U.S., and they're based out of Amarillo, Texas, with five or six feeding locations. They were really tied in with Cargill, but James and Dal, James Herring and Dal Reed were sent out to liquidate Friona Industries back in the late 70s, and they got out there and got digging into the numbers on the cattle finishing side stuff, so like, you know what, we think we can make this work, and, and they did make it work, and they went, we've been in that account for decades and they they've gone 30 years with losing money only one out of those 30 years and in the cattle industry that's unheard of because there's so many cycles of bust and boom but he came to omaha and we had dinner one night and i was early on working for farm credit sitting beside him and I, i said mr herring appreciate you coming up sitting beside me I'm new to to what I'm doing, I'm new in my job role, what advice would you give me? And we continued on eating and he never answered me, he's like, oh great, here here I am, some snot-nosed little uh, relationship manager talking to one of the best, biggest cattle guys in the US and he blows me off, I must have insulted him or something. Ten minutes later, he leans over to me and says, Judd, you asked a really good question. And I apologize, I didn't answer you right away. I wanted to take some time to think about it. <clears throat> and he came back to me and he said, you ask a good question. I'll give you two pieces of advice. He said, one, you want to work for a good company that you can be proud to represent, and I think you do. Two, you need to choose your customers wisely. Because the beef industry is a tough industry and you're gonna have to go to bat for your customer when nobody else will. And that still rings true to me this day and that was, my goodness, 20 years ago. This episode's podcast ponder question is... That the best book that I've ever read was by uh, Sir John Templeton. He started the Templeton Funds. Came from a very meager background and uh, was highly successful in the investment world. He put together a book. It's called "A Hundred Life Lessons" by Sir John Templeton. And it's just stories from around the world that are universally accepted. and um, they're short stories. There are a hundred of them, but they come from all over the world. And if, if everybody would read and abide by the stories that he put in there, this world would be a much better place.
0: I'll have to check that one out. 100. Life Lessons by John Templeton. Yes. Sir John
1: Templeton. Sir John. Yep, he's knighted by the, the Queen of England at, at one point.
0: That kind of misses the point of a rapid fire All my follow-up questions. Let's Sorry. move on to the next one. <laughs> Sorry about that. No,
1: that was me. Nothing like a beef and swine lender to screw up the podcast.
0: <laughs> no, I was, that was me. I got interested in what you were suggesting there. All right, here's a quick one. Favorite place you've ever visited or vacationed?
1: Hawaii. No, only been there once with the family. The family still talks about that trip. It's just a unique experience. And and we were in uh, Maui, which got hit by fires here lately, which is terrible. Beautiful island, and it took me back in time. In
0: your opinion, what's the best restaurant in Omaha? It's <laughs> going to be a steakhouse, probably. <laughs>
1: well, if if the company is buying, it's <laughs> <his> mahogany. <laughs> That's not the same answer if I'm
0: buying. Fair enough. Most famous person you've ever seen in real life? Uh,
1: George, uh, President George Bush, the first. He was in Lincoln uh, at a speaking engagement, probably a rally back in the 90s, and I think I was in the second row for his speech, and he walked right in front of me. Uh, That's about as famous as it gets there. If you had to
0: describe your day-to-day
1: job or responsibilities
0: in one word, what would it be? Amazing. We'll leave that there. That's a great answer. Okay, that kind of wraps up our rapid fire question segment. I'd like to end today with a couple of young professional questions in True Roots fashion. Uh, just a couple of things, and feel free to take these wherever they, they might take you in, in your answer, but I'll, I'll try to get it started here with a couple probing questions. What uh, program or group have you been involved with at either FCSA or elsewhere in your career that you remember being the most beneficial? Was it that first job? Uh, was it a particular job? What uh, What's something that sticks out at you that you did early on that set you up for success?
1: Just, I, I would recommend being involved in as much as a person can be, and maybe outside of your comfort zone uh, early on, because you're you're gonna figure out Your cadence what you're interested in what what makes you get out of bed in the morning if you need an alarm clock to get out of bed in the morning you're not doing what you're meant to to do Uh, I've never needed an alarm clock I love what I do and the people that I work with but for me probably the, the thing that helped me grow the most was interacting with other system parties within the beef industry there's a cattle feedlot group Uh, Five different associations and banks that came together just to talk about beef lending. And even though we're different associations and banks, we still look at things very much the same. And collectively, we've been able to do more as a group than we would have been able to do individually. That group is the sole financial sponsor for the Cattle Feeders Hall of Fame. And that's industry people uh, on the beef side of things that have moved. Uh, the needle in a big way in the beef industry. And when you look at the people that have been inducted into the Cattle Feeders Hall of Fame, the farm credit system has worked with over 70% of all the inductees. So that's pretty unique.
0: You've been in the industry a long time, and I'm guessing this is something that you have worked on over time. So it may be a big answer, but what strategies have you used or found success in around cultivating and maintaining a network within the industries that you were working in or outside of them? That's a good question.
1: Uh, what I found that has worked personally has also worked professionally and is very similar aligned to what's made FCS America successful. Uh, you, you, you know you want to align, you look at FCS America, we're a consistent reliable source of credit in good times and bad. That helps me individually when I'm going out to customers knowing that I've got a company that I work for that is committed to the industry I serve. That's huge. But along those lines is making sure that you're out and and about, that you're active, that you're moving the needle and are passionate about the industry you serve. If you're not passionate, you're not going to do the little things. You're not going to go the extra mile because it, it, it may not mean as much to you as if you're integral you know passionate about that industry so I just try to every day you know how can I add value to the customers I serve how can I add value to the industry that I serve
0: that probably keeps people coming back when you're selling a real value proposition and makes you easy to connect with and I would I would imagine when when you're selling something that's real and making those real connections with people it's not transactional
1: if i were any good i would have taken very good notes over the last 30 years because the customers we we serve are truly unique and everybody's got a story whether you work for fcs america or you're a customer of fcs america every family has a story which has made them great and it's amazing how wonderful how how many wonderful customers we have that started or came from absolutely nothing
0: Well, and that goes back to exactly what you said about asking for advice from James Herring and choosing your customers wisely. So I'm sure that's something that you as a lender have had control over also with your network within the industry.
1: Oh, I I, I haven't worked with some customers for decades, and we still talk on a quarterly basis as friends. That
0: seems like the way to do it. So this may seem like a straightforward question being that you're into the leadership role for the past year, but in what role in your career did you learn the most about leadership? Is it, is it the one you're in now with the direct experience on a day-to-day basis, or did you learn about it um, from somebody who inspired you to get into a leadership position?
1: Well, that's a tough question for me. I, I've, I'm probably learning the most about leadership within the last year in my first leadership role as a senior VP. Um, I mean I I have had a lot to learn but it's not that difficult with all the experience somebody has everybody has leadership within them and we see it every day and it's not I, I hate to diminish leadership but it's not that difficult if you think about what you're doing I mean you think about our core values honesty and integrity transparency You know, the things that describe a leader, if you emulate those and think about what you're doing and care about the people that you're leading and working with, it's pretty simple.
0: Uh, That's really good to hear. I think that's a a good take on on leadership itself. So to wrap up here, I just wanted to open this up to you on behalf of Roots and, and young professionals throughout the company. Kind of open-ended here, but what advice or tips would you give to someone in the early part of their career at this company?
1: I would just say expose yourself to as much as possible, because what you don't know, you don't know. You may like some area that you know nothing about and be very successful at it. And the other thing is never compromise your core values. I mean, be who you are. I'm a leader, and there are some things that I really need to put on the back shelf as a leader, and I do, um, but it's hard to, to change a person's stripes, be true to your core values, and make sure that, that you never, uh, I mean, ne- never compromise them.
0: I think that's a great place to stop. Thank you, Judd, for this conversation and for joining us on this month's Strengthen Your Roots podcast, and for sharing more about the Commercial Proteins team It has been great to learn more about both you and your teams. Thank you again for the time today. For any questions, comments, feedback, or ideas for future podcasts, please email $roots, and don't forget to engage with us on Yammer. For the podcast ponder question from today's episode, there's a chance to win some Roots swag. Stay tuned for next month's episode. Thank you, everyone, and have a great day. Thank you for joining us on Strengthen Your Roots. We hope you'll join us again on our next episode.